you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. All right, everybody. Right up top here. Before anything happens, I owe everyone listening a huge thank you. A couple episodes ago, we released an episode called Begging and Pleading Redux. And that episode announced the release of our latest book title, The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival, in which I had gone on, the pot, in which the podcast episode, that is, I had implored you to make the purchase, not only for your own benefit, but because I have a lifelong dream of having one of my titles hit the New York Times bestseller list. And you guys knocked it out of the park. The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival debuted as number four on the New York Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who went out and bought a book. It's still for sale. It's still a good book, but you did it. Thank you. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, we're joined... Ah, I hate to say this, people. I hate to say it, but we're joined remotely. It's like the COVID. Ah, COVID. We're joined remotely by uh, Clay Newcomb. Newcomb. Hi, Steve. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Mark, back 40 Canyon. Howdy. Clay, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Doing very good. Mark, are you well rested right now? Finally, for the first time in about a month, I do feel rested. It's been a 
been a busy spell here. So the last two days I got to sleep in and really so like, enjoyed that. Like uh, you being like a, um, you know, kind of a like a a, a white tail rut fanatical kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's still raging around though. So why are you resting now? Yeah, so it, it's kind of just. I'm not completely resting. I'm going to start hunting again tomorrow, but I needed to take a couple days because the last 30, I've hunted 28 of the last 30 days. So starting October 18th, that was when it all got crazy. So got to see my wife and kids a little bit, get a little sleep, and then, uh, and then yeah, I'll get back after it. I need to get a job like, uh, job like you got, Mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm, work, I'm still getting the regular working too, don't worry. <laughs> it's just after dark. It's amazing what one day of sleeping in will do for you after you've been pounding the daylight mm-hmm. hunting. I, I, I've got an equation. I think one morning of sleeping in makes up for 10 days of hunting. It's amazing what one little break can do. Yeah, it's I true. agree. Yeah, that's true. You can come back pretty ragged and recover pretty quick, and it almost makes you think like you could build a system out of it. Mm. And it's worth it. I have. I used to think that, I would feel really guilty if I wasn't hunting every single possible moment I could. But I think that you get that eventual point of diminishing returns Mm -hmm. where you you go 10 days straight and you've just lost focus and you've lost some edge. If you get that one morning, it's totally worth sacrificing four hours of hunting to get the much, you know, much more effective seven more days after that, I think. Uh, The thing that messes with me about it is all the, the, there's a lot of really compelling research um that sleeping is uh real real good for you and that there's possible links and I, I usually hate when people say there's possible links between you know this and that but um early onset dementia and stuff man from not sleeping mm. enough mm. like you need to do it and yeah. I used to not do it much. And when I did, I was mostly kind of like sleeping like like a lot of times it kind of hung over and whatnot. Now I try to really prioritize uh, getting enough sleep. Do you know what your magic number is? A lot of people kind of feel like they find that sweet spot of how much they need every night. Yeah, but I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> it's eight was, hours, dude. You don't need to be embarrassed about that. Yeah, eight hours. Hey, did you guys catch this news, this news item out of Wyoming? In Wyoming, they have, are you, are you guys familiar with the one shot, the uh, one shot antelope hunt? Yeah, I know that. I'm an alumni, an alum of the one mm-hmm. shot. So for 80 years in Lander, Wyoming, the governor of, so for 80 years in a row, I think it's been like, what, 16 governors or something have been involved in this? Uh they host this antelope hunt and you have these like, it's very, uh, in, in describing it, it, it can sound a little compromised, but it's like this, uh, you have these teams, right? And the governor hosts it. It raises money for some habitat improvement work. Um, the governor hosts it and all these groups come out and you make these little teams and the teams go out to hunt antelope. And they even get special game commission antelope tags, right? The teams come out to hunt antelope, and 
you gotta you can only shoot once okay if you shoot more than once you you can't you're you're disqualified so you everybody has to shoot one time and get an antelope and so if your group of three people can go out and fire three shots one one shot for each of you and get an antelope any basically throughout the whole day there's like a timing element to it but basically if you can accomplish that and all three people get one with one shot you have a very good chance of of winning and they do it in conjunction with um a local tribe and there's all these like banquets and everything i did this a couple years ago where i was invited by uh so i was invited by colorado's governor and I went with a former special forces soldier who's on our team. He said he likes to get ringers. <laughs> so it was me, a special forces guy, and him. And we went out and did this thing. Now, at that time, there was starting to be a lot of like heat, a lot of heat on the one-shot antelope hunt club because it was dudes only. Mm. bros only and had been <laughs> dudes only for 80 years and like usually i do all kinds of things with just guys that just happens to be just guys mm-hmm. but i usually uh would shy away from anything meant to be just guys like the minute someone says it's just guys all of a sudden it gives me a creepy feeling <laughs> like anything like just for men or like a men's club or a men's group i'm like home why you mean like if i wanted to bring my super good buddy who's a woman she can't come it's against the rule it just strikes me as so weird right yeah i'm surprised that was still the case well with a lot of old stuff that's been going on a long time like i honestly honestly didn't put too much thought into it because there's so much like culturally there's so many old institutions that are dudes only that it's almost mm-hmm. like it's not like it's stand it's beginning to stand out but for a long time it didn't like stand out because my old man uh like growing up my old man belonged to uh he's big he, he liked to go drink at the vfw after he ice fished and that wasn't men only but <laughs> at that time it was men only and then he belonged to a thing called the wise men like a philanthropic group that raised money for the why and you had to be a dude to be a wise man and then his church group was for dudes only like his particular group within the church was a dude only group like if a woman wanted to go they would like not let her go so it was very it's like very to me right or wrong very normal appearing normal feeling to have like these gender exclusive things. I didn't pay much attention to it, but when I went, I was just the, the buzz. Uh, there was buzz around two issues. There was buzz around that these people that participated got these dedicated tags, which chapped the asses of a lot of people around town who were like, I have to draw the permit, but like if people go to this, they like get permits and that, that was irritating to some. Yeah. And was this like a unit that was tough to draw otherwise? Yes. Okay. And it would have been tough, in- but, but a good unit, a good unit. Yeah. And it would have been invitation only. I assume you have to apply. 
But oh, I was there, like I was invited. So the governor of Wyoming always has a team. The governor of Colorado always has a team. This has always been like the thing. The the new governor of Colorado, apparently the first guy in forever, like the, the new governor of Colorado, his uh I, I gather that his husband is um big anti hunter. So this dude isn't going. And he broke the whole tradition of it being like the governor of Wyoming and the governor of Colorado hunting together. I was there at like, like I had met Wyoming's. This gets a little complicated. I was at a concert. I was at an event one time where Wyoming's governor, Matt Mead and Colorado's governor, John Hickenlooper who are who are friendly and they're on other sides of the political spectrum but they're friendly and respect you know respectful to one another i met them both like we had a cocktail one time at a, an event where they were being honored for their collaborative work around sage grouse habitat okay so they were being honored as this like democrat and republican who set their differences aside and came together around sage grouse work and habitat work. So I shot the shit with both of them. And afterward I was invited to go down and do this deal. So here I get one of these tags and I don't do shit to get it. I just get it. Okay. So you could, someone could look and say, Oh, that's not fair. But then the Wyoming game commission, um, they put like apparently they put value on this sort of like collaborative conservation thing that has been going on for 80 years and fuels a lot of economic activity in the area and brings different politicians and figures together to in, in this like collaborative mood of doing habitat work. So, right, like everything, like everything, there's two sides to the story, but the the women thing was just becoming an issue. And they started like somehow they got other commission tags to start like a woman's antelope hunt. Mm. So now you've created, now they had like two of these things at this point. Now this new story just came out that now for the first time since 1940, women will be allowed to compete in the 2021 lander one shot antelope hunt. So they combined them. They didn't. I don't know if they officially combined them or if they got competitive. You know, you remember like when uh, I don't know if it's like a situation where. uh, Remember how the. uh, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts got in a little pissing match because the Boy Scouts were going to let girls into the Boy Scouts and that pissed Mm -hmm. off the Girl Scouts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about what went on, but a lot of people are applauding this, even even like people who are participating, though. Another buddy of mine sent this article to me, and he had done the the, the one shot, um, and had a good time there. He was also a governor. He was like on a governor team. He had done the one shot and thought that this is a step in the right direction. So yeah, it seems like a all, simpler solution. All women, te- like you can have all women be on a team, or you can have you know men women groups. And the way this thing works is you apply. So when I was there, like some. There was like I think some uh, a group of uh, firefighters right had applied to come down and, and they were accepted into it, and like I said, a lot of banquets and 
elbow rubbing. What's the what's the prize? What do you get if you win this thing? Oh, I think the, the governor's I know between the two governors there's this statue, this little shitting statue of an antelope. And it lives <laughs> at the governor's mansion and the it winner. swaps back and forth. And there's a lot of spirited uh there's a lot of spirited you know, rivalry around who did it. So when I was on it, it went to, it, it, it flew home with the Colorado governor. Mm. So, and there's Colorado rumors. Does not have a, say sorry. it again. I just said, is Colorado just not going to have a team then this year? I, I, I heard that the governor of Colorado, Hickenlooper always took a lot of heat. You know, or was could potentially take a lot of heat and took some heat. And after Hickenlooper had gotten involved in some things that uh, Hickenlooper had gotten involved in some gun control measures uh, that were very unpopular with hunters and gun owners. And when I was there with uh, <laughs> when I was there with him, that was a, a issue, and I thought it was. Um bold of him to go right hmm. but he went and took it and tried to you know hmm. and, and like that collaborative spirit even though people being on different sides of the aisle on such an important issue um yeah he but yeah now apparently the colorado's governor won't go well don't they say that uh some women tend to be better long-range shooters than men when it comes to, like, sitting on a bench. You know, if you were to, like, train a man and a woman the same, a lot of times that woman would be a better shot. Have you heard that? I mean, I don't know why that wouldn't be true. But, no, I don't I don't know that. I don't know that. But, I mean, I yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't... I've heard that. Wouldn't even I've heard kinda that. Su- wouldn't kind of surprise me. I've heard that from a guy that uh, that had a long-range shooting school. He told me that. Yeah. I want uh, Danielle Pruitt, who, man, her, uh, have you guys made Danielle's, um, have you guys made Danielle's uh, whiskey butter sauce heart recipe? I just was looking at it, but I haven't tried it yet. shit, man. Anyhow, she did the, she did the, 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 I think she did the woman's one shot. I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna ask Danielle. I, I should have. Uh, I'm gonna see if Danielle and Corinne, our producer, I feel like they should apply and go down. Apply for the old boys one. Get a little team going. And go on down there. Yeah. Shoot the place up. Can you? Are you? allowed to ever go back again steve or is it a once in a lifetime opportunity no i was allowed weirdly i yeah you are and there's all these stipulations to it but you are um and it's it it works in various ways but just for scheduling and other reasons i was not able to go um someone tried there was a because hickenlooper uh hickenlooper's a in Colorado, you know, he's kind of a centrist. So he won the, he, he went from, he termed out as a governor in Colorado and just took a Senate seat. He's a centrist Democrat, right? So he gets a lot of heat from the left. 
and he gets a lot of heat from the right. Um, someone had done a, there was a little bit of a hit piece out on Hick and Looper for have, for, um, a hit piece out on him for having participated in the mm. one shot. Well, did he, do you know if he killed an antelope with one shot? I mean, that's the main thing, I think. Well, here's the thing. No, he did not. <laughs> he did not. And, and I heard, mm. I don't know. Like, See, that, that makes heard, you lean back the other direction. If you I miss. Had, yeah, I had heard people say there was like grumblings. Um, I should ask him about this. There was grumblings. Some people either like I don't. The guy doesn't do it. Like I don't think he's like an avid hunter. There's grumblings that he throws his shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's where I was going. It's like I went, but I missed. Yeah. So yeah. the reason, but the reason he got to return with the statue, with the the to bring it back to his. I think he had had the thing in the first place. It was like he has it in his office quite a lot, or had it in his office quite a lot. I think the reason he got to do it is because, like I said, he brought in some ringers, you know, and um, so I did. I got mine very. I got one early in the morning, and this former Green Beret, he got one early in the morning. Um, and then Hickenlooper did not get one. Um, but then. Governor Meade, the way it worked was like, he can't fill, he can't get all ringers. Like he gets assigned, there's some weird tradition where he gets assigned someone, like an like like some person who's been involved for a long time, gets assigned to him. And I think he can only get one ringer. Mm. You tracking me? It's, it's not a strange fair. institution. Oh, <laughs> listen, listen. You don't. I, yes, I had quite a good time. <laughs> I had quite a good time, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, you know, they're evolving with the times. Yeah. Do you think like, is that is this is this thing pretty well received by the people in Colorado and Wyoming? I mean, because it kind of it does kind of make people uncomfortable sometimes. These even governor tags, and and I understand yes. governor oh, tags it's, and it's like con- yeah, it's controversial. It's controversial for sure. I didn't like. I didn't. Uh, I'm guilty of having not known what it was until I was until I was invited, and I didn't give it. I didn't spend too much time on it. Um, I, when I got invited, I called uh, Rourke Denver because Rourke Denver had, who's a former SEAL, Rourke Denver had been brought down there by Governor Meade as as a ringer on that side and he got it. You, you were recruited as a ringer though. Is that true? Well, are you, are you questioning the lot? Are you saying that that wasn't, (laughs) are you, are you trying to be insulting to me? No, 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 no. Just, I mean, you know, like you're like like making a little dig. I mean, I guess I'm just kind of like, you know, like an NBA draft, you know, it's like first round draft picks, like, that dude's a ringer. You get into the second round, and it's like, you know, he's good enough to play in the NBA, but he's not. These these a, NBA a references, these NBA references are going to fall flat on Steve. He's not following your. Yeah, drifting. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, no it, that's not true because I just watched um, the Last Dance, 
Mm. That was good. Fascinating, dude. I now know everything about basketball. (laughs) (laughs) I know all about the field they play on. Listen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) That was a little dig, Clay. And all I can say, all I can say is let's just take a look at the facts. Uh, At daybreak, at daybreak, (laughs) I got a buck. Yeah. (laughs) Can't argue with that. The cold gray light of dawn. Yeah. I'm with you. How far was the shot? How far was the shot? Two. Okay. okay. 176, 176 maybe, if I remember. Digging back in the old memory bank. Mm. <laughs> what? Like what? Dude, Phil, can you cut him off? Yeah, Clay's getting a little bold. <laughs> Yeah, it's like to be oh, new man. to the team. Oh. I know it's like <laughs> no, no, cow man. For for all I'm the in, listeners, I'm over out here there. like half quarantined, and then I gotta have like. <laughs> all right, so Clay, oh, that's a great, that's a great <laughs> shot, man. <laughs> <laughs> too late, buddy. It's too late. Uh... <laughs> Wait, yeah, I, you, this you, is this is this is coming from a guy. Who lives in a state you can't see more than 50 yards in any direction. Yeah. Like a long shot for me is like a, you know, 22 yard traditional archery shot. So I, uh, I, for the first time in quite a while, missed a big game animal with a rifle this year. And now I'm not saying that all my hits are great hits because that's definitely not true. But just to like flat out, um, to flat out miss, really shook me up, man. You know, you, I, I thought you guys did uh, your description of all the factors that went into that miss was pretty compelling, though. I mean, you know the yeah. the, the the length of the hair, you know the you know there were a couple, there were two factors I think that were causing you to maybe shoot a little bit high that had to do with the with the gun itself and. So anyway, I, I I appreciated the in-depth look into the miss. And yeah. I didn't want to I didn't really want to bring that up, but you know. <laughs> you're, sure. you're, uh Clay's referring to a previous episode called The Miss and the Return. Um Clay, what is the name of the now like super famous bear that 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 has roamed into your home state there? Yeah, Bruno. It's a bear named Bruno. You're familiar with the legacy of Petals the bear, right? Yes. Yeah, up in New Jersey, the bear yeah. that would was missing a front leg would walk on two legs all over all over the place, yeah. He had a real penchant for eating bird seed. I'm talking about mm. Petals. Clay's going to tell us the, the 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 saga of Bruno the bear in a minute here. It was like now and then a bear really makes the news. Yeah. And right now Bruno is in the spotlight, but Petals the bear had some sort of deformity um, where it would walk around a fair bit on its hind legs. Yeah. You know, we had a, to, to put a pause on pedals for a minute. When we were floating a river up in Alaska this year, looking for moose, we had a sow grizzly who was irritated with us stand up on her back feet and just swinging her paws wildly in agitation, but a hundred yards mm-hmm. away. You mm-hmm. ever seen that? 
I never have. Yeah, like shadow boxing, like like shadow, like swiping her paws, like just all worked up and stood there for a remarkably long time. Hmm. And then later, kind of around the next bend, kind of like half charged a raft, all worked up. So Pebbles mm. pedals would get around on his back feet, and he got real famous around New Jersey. Um, yeah. and was very popular with like New Jersey cat ladies and whatnot. So then some dude, New Jersey had a bear hunting season, and some dude, knowingly or unknowingly, I don't know what, shoots pedals. And New Jersey has this kind of awful practice had this maybe. Yeah. The governor of New Jersey, if you, if you live there, like don't vote for that dude ever again. The governor of New Jersey sort of ran on an anti bear hunting platform. Like Mm -hmm. a plank in his platform was to be anti bear hunting. Yeah. Just a, a, a joke of a position in, you know, contradicting his own state fish and game agency. So, yeah he uh they had this unsavory practice which is like where you had to go to these check stations when you're bear hunting and they would allow like like open to the public so people could go down and like get riled up about so if a hunter goes out and legally kills a bear and is trying to you know follow the letter of the law and bring the bear into a check station you got to go in there and deal with hecklers you know It'd be like if uh, if Planned Parenthood, like, you could come into the lobby if you didn't like what they had going on in there and stand in the lobby. Like, how would that go over with people? Yeah, Just asking mm-hmm. for trouble. So, yeah, pedals, everybody had a shit fit. There was yeah. even a newspaper that ran an obituary on pedals, and mm. um, I read that he was assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, you know there's there's some new Ugh. stuff with that, Steve. You probably you may have seen it. We we ran an article in it uh, about it, but he's so it's the guy's name is Phil Murphy, and he is uh, vowed. Who's, who's the guy named Phil Murphy? F- Phil Murphy, the, the oh, governor the, I'm sorry, of New I Jersey. The hunter. Yeah, the governor. Yeah. The go- sorry, yeah, governor of New Jersey's name is Phil Murphy, and he has vowed that in 2021 there will be no bear season in New Jersey, and. Well, they already closed it on state land, right? That's right. But you can still hunt on private land, which quite a bit of bear hunting in New Jersey does take place on private land, so it hasn't totally shut it down. But, you know, obviously all the game officials are trying to find ways to manage this large population of bears, which is, it's a super dense population of bears and people. So, I mean, it just, you know, I mean, we're preaching to the choir talking about it here, but I mean... It just makes common sense. It just makes rational sense from every single perspective that that hunters would manage that bear population. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a sticky situation. Does New Do you guys know? Someone could even look real quick. Does New Jersey have the have Have they gotten the right to hunt and fish uh, constitutional amendment? I don't know that one. We'll find that out in a second. So start telling us about Bruno the bear, who's now like the latest internet darling. Yeah. So kind of here, here's the timeline, Steve, and here, here is what we believe has happened. Some of, some of this is like very documentable. 
Some of it is speculation. But so Bruno the Bear, they believe, came out of northern Wisconsin. And the, I've talked to multiple people about this that are in the know. I've talked to the Arkansas bear biologist, Missouri bear biologist, and another guy named Daryl Ratajak, and who's a biologist who's kind of covered the whole story of Bruno the Bear. But basically, in Nor- as I understand it, northern Wisconsin would be where most of the bear density, you know, high bear density areas are. Southern Wisconsin would be like farm ground. And in southern Wisconsin, they started noticing this bear traveling through urban areas and agricultural areas. And it was enough of of, uh, oddity that people in southern Wisconsin started saying, hey, there's a bear in an odd place. Okay, That bear gained some recognition on social media. Because he's wearing a collar. A tracking no, collar. Oh, he's not no, wearing a tracking collar. No, the bear to this day has no tracking collar. Oh. The the oh, bear. Really? Yep. Okay. He does not. Okay, the bear. So let me just give you the general overview, and then we can talk about the details. The bear traveled from what they believe, northern Wisconsin into southern Wisconsin into Iowa, crossed, swam the Mississippi River into Illinois, stayed in Illinois for some time, swam the Mississippi River again. All this is very, I mean, people videoed him doing this, came back into Iowa, and then in early July ended up in Missouri, traveled south in Missouri, basically got himself cornered into a very populated area north of St. Louis where the bear would had no way out other than to cross major interstate highways. The Missouri Department of Conservation sends their bear team in. They capture the bear, sedate the bear, and take the bear to southern Missouri where they have a a population of bears and good bear habitat. So they, you know, the Missouri Department of Conservation, they handled this bear just like they would of any other you know, nuisance bear. There's oh, a bear in St. Louis. Can you pause a minute? Cause I'm, I'm trying to take the perspective of the listener here as a listener to this story. Uh, what is it w- without a distinguishing markings? I just assumed it had a collar on because how in the hell right. else would they know? Yeah. That's okay. I'm like, what is it doing that people Great are question. like, Oh, there he is. That's him. Okay. I asked the exact same question to Daryl Ratajak. And he said that the bear has an uncanny desire to walk down roads, to walk through crop fields, and basically to stay extremely visible and to be undeterred by humans. Okay. Man, I'm serious. There are videos with 40, 50 people standing relatively close to this bear, like following it. And it's a four to five year old male, they think. So it's, I mean, it's a good sized male. Okay. It's not a young male, which is odd. Because usually a dispersing male would be a young one. That's what's so odd about this is this is an adult male. The only time it's been marked was when the Missouri guys got it. They put in they put ear tags in it that are distinguishable. And oh, okay. Can I can I add can I add another thing in here to that um that to, uh, has to do with this the Wisconsin component of this real quick? Yeah, we've had uh, Dr. Carl Malcolm on the show many times. Uh, when Carl was a bear researcher, came early in his career, he was a bear researcher and did a lot of work on 
looking at these bears that were coming out of northern Wisconsin um, into southern Wisconsin and how successful they were. Mm-hmm. He had this thing about this animal he named the Wisconsin super sow that put off put off and raised to 100 pounds two litters of five cubs. Mm-hmm. In such a mild climate in southern Wisconsin that when she went to hibernate, she would just lay down under a tree. And if you look at bear, I think in helping with, with this story, if you look at like bear populations and clay, I, you know, this way better than me, but you can speak to this for people that it's like, it's like bear black bear populations in the country aren't, aren't like intuitive and it's patchy. You know, if you look at like moose, right. You'd look and be like, okay, there's a bunch of moose across the North or whatever. Right. With bears, there's like, they're here and they're there. There's holes in between. And it might not make immediate sense to someone, right? Like, how could you have, why do you have bears in Arkansas and Missouri? But then north, there could be holes in their distribution to the north, east, south, and west. Right. So if you don't mind speaking to that a little bit to help explain this bear moving around. So the, the, the natural range of the black bear in North America was would have been from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, from the boreal forest all the way down into Mexico with a small, a, a, a sizable hole in the Great Plains, okay? But all these populations would have been connected, you know, pre-European settlement. And so now, just with urban urbanization, fragmentation of wilderness, just that has happened with civilization – we now just have these pockets of really quality bear habitat. And it's, it's relatively big. I mean, there, there's surprisingly for such a large carnivore, there's a lot of black bears and black bears are thriving. But what it does create is what they'd call in the biology world, allopatric populations, meaning like isolated populations. Like for instance, like the Arkansas Oklahoma, southern Missouri bear population, they would have said was an allopatric population. That population is not breeding with bears from East Tennessee. That that population is not breeding with bears from northern Wisconsin. But that's what's so crazy about this is that now we're seeing like a connection between these really vastly separated populations of bears. And so this bear ends up in Arkansas. I mean, to to fit to kind of give the whole macro view, the bear started in northern Wisconsin and is today in Arkansas. And the how, question how many is... Mi- how many miles, just linear? Let, let, I'll take a look. I, I think it's around 1,000 miles. Okay. And so here, here's the most interesting thing, Steve, is that there's... With talking to all these biologists, I just asked them, like, what do you, why do you think this bear did this? And there were some interesting responses. Like... A bear disperses for two reasons, to find new territory because he's being pushed out of his territory or to find mate, find a mate or to find a food source. And essentially, Daryl said, if this bear was looking for a mate, he wouldn't have had to go all the way to Arkansas. He could have stopped in southern Missouri like he passed through lots of like pretty good bear areas. So he clearly wasn't looking for mate. He wasn't looking for food. 
because he passed through all kinds of great food sources. And he's an older male, so he wasn't dispersing just to find new territory, or he would have just found new territory in southern Wisconsin. The only thing that makes any sense from a biological perspective is what they call the homing instinct on these bears, which they relocate these bears all the time when they get in nuisance trouble, you know, so they'll, they'll, a bear will be getting in trouble, you know, digging into somebody's trash can. They'll capture that bear. They'll drive it 30, 40 miles away, turn it loose. And the next day, the bear will be there eating out of that trash can again. There's so many incredible stories up to, you know, guys taking bears 150 miles away and that bear ending up back. This bear acted like he was coming home. That's, that's the only like biological driver, the way he was just headed due south. I yeah, mean, like, there I'm, was I'm nothing. Look, I'm looking at it now. Like, if you remove any zigzagging around, he covered between seven and eight hundred miles as the crow flies. Yeah, yeah. Hey, in in that whole time, Steve, he never got into any nuisance trouble. That that's shocking. That thing walked on roads. It chose populated areas rather than like walking in like river drainages. So, to Myron Means, the Arkansas Bear Coordinator. He told me that to his knowledge, the bear never got a single nuisance call. Like it didn't go on people's porches. It ate natural food. It kept its nose out of the, out of the, you know, out of the bad stuff. So hmm. It's incredible. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. 
Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Okay, now here's here's the coolest part. So if the bear was coming home, why did he, like, how did he get up there? And there's a theory, and you're gonna like this theory, Steve. It's 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 it's, it's crazy. There is a theory that this bear got trapped in a grain barge on the Mississippi River <laughs> in Arkansas, and he was transported up the Mississippi River, got out in Wisconsin. And has been on a journey back home. I love oh, that. That's story. great. You know, there's. A, <laughs> I'm sticking with it. Well, you know what? There's a story. You guys grew up reading about Paul Revere, right? Yeah, one yeah. by land, two by sea. You know, the British are coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Later, historians really started to poke some holes into the story of Paul Revere, and I don't know the details of it, but. It seems though there's this this idea that it was a uh, little more little more fiction than fact, right? Or like a, an an embellished legend. And some politician I can't remember who it was said, uh, "I love Paul Revere, whether he rode or not." <laughs> yeah. So that I like that theory. True or not, I'm sticking with that shit, man. Uh, that's <laughs> that's what I'm buying. That's what I'm buying. Hell of a story. Hey, this. Uh, so here, here's the the social odd thing about this is that this is the first time that something like this has been documented on social media. There's a Facebook page with 230 thousand followers that's called "Keep Bruno Safe." I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. Yeah, "Keep Bruno Safe." And so Myron Means, Arkansas Bear Coordinator, large carnivore coordinator, received. The Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, when they found that bear was here, received an incredible amount of pressure to collar that bear so that he would then be protected by law in Arkansas because you cannot shoot a collared bear in Arkansas. So, okay, like the hold, world. But back, back up. Hold, hold on a second here. Bruno is coming from a state that has bear seasons. Yes. His journey began in a bear season state, right? Yeah. 
But then he spent some time in a couple states with no bear season and got famous. Correct? That's right. People start falling in love with him. And then now in his southern journey, he has now re-entered a bear hunting state. That's right. And now people are like, I don't care about all the bears that live where he used to live. And I didn't care about him when he lived there. And I don't care about the bears that live in Arkansas normally anyway. I don't want anyone to hurt that bear. Because right. I know about that one. That's right. Okay, so go on. Well, I, I was proud of the Game and Fish's response here. Is Myron, Myron said, that bear is no different than any other bear that we have in this state. And we're not going to collar him. I mean, they just they just said we're not going to collar that bear because they don't collar male bears. The only reason they collar bears and expend resources is to do sow studies, den studies, and whatnot. And so the bear right now, they think they know where it's at. Supposedly, a hunter took a photo of this bear in a den cavity tree, and it is just outside of one of the bear zones um, in Arkansas. Uh-oh. But uh, but. It's, it's oh, a what a deer hunter? Yeah, a deer hunter. So, yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not even in a bear zone. It, it right now where the bear is at, it is not in a bear zone, as I understand it. But hey, you'll like this, Steve. So all this happened in the summer, and then it the bear came into Arkansas in September. Okay. The Arkansas bear season opens in September. My mother, my sweet mother, calls me on the phone and says, Clay, don't kill bruno (laughs) my mom's like my pr manager and she's like whatever you do don't kill bruno and i said okay mom got it i won't do it because she doesn't want you to take the heat or she doesn't want oh yeah 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 she 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 could foresee you know me killing this famous bear which yeah there is a thing though man where there are dudes out there, like like for there are dudes out there who would be like, I want that bear. And there are dudes yeah. out there, which I would imagine most people I hang out with would be like, I don't want anything to do with that bear. That seems yeah. like trouble. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, here's what happened too, is that so they were posting all over social media, like these daily updates on this bear. Like you could attract, you could have known where this bear was any given day of the year. Some day, like when the bear came into Arkansas, somebody got online, a hunter and made a comment and said, wow, I've got 200,000 guides telling me exactly where a bear is. Mm. You see? And so after that, the thing shut down on the daily updates <laughs> no of exactly way. where the, that's that that's what I heard. That's what that's what uh that's what one of the biologists told me. I mean, like they kind of went quiet. They were like, "Oh wow, we're giving out too much information." There is a there is a bird. I'm not gonna name. I'm not gonna name the species. There is a non-native. There is a very small population of a non-native bird that lives in one state in America. 
Um, and they live in one specific mountain range in one state in America. And you're allowed to hunt for this bird. Non-native. Hmm. It is uh, exceedingly difficult to get one. They live in very inhospitable, very high elevation, cliffy terrain, and they're hard to find. And we took a, a interest in seeing about going and, and checking this whole situation out. And I realized that when birders see the bird, they <laughs> they log its where they saw it. And I remember thinking that that was not that great of an idea mm. to do that. A little over the little over the line. In a similar situation, something we've covered in the past is in the state of Montana. The state has gotten. I can't remember in the in, in what timeline, twenty four requests for radio collar data off game animals, and they have little choice but to comply. Hmm. Requests coming from who? Hunters. You can just get that information. Apparently, they don't. It has to FOIA. through through whatever legal structure they work under. It's public information because it's a state project so if the wow. state puts mm. a collar on a elk a bull elk apparently someone can come and say i would like to see the collar data off that elk and they don't mm. have a i think they don't have a way in which they can say screw you mm. that's surprising yeah uh i was in fairbanks one time during moose season and I was talking to a biologist and she was telling me she's got collars on a handful of bulls that live right around the edges of Fairbanks. And she could at any minute tell you where those bulls were standing hmm. and doesn't want to do that. Now maybe they have different rules up there, but it was an interesting conundrum. You got to be pretty like, you got to be pretty pathetic if that's your hunt plan. Hey, this was this was public knowledge, so I'm not like divulging a secret. I saw it on social media, but our buddy Mike Chamberlain, the turkey doc, yeah, he, uh, you know, he's radio collar and all these uh, gobblers and different oh, yeah. places. I think in Alabama, he at one time gave information to. Um, well, he talked. Yeah, another. he tells the story on this podcast. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, there's no. Okay, got it. No need for me to like. They couldn't kill it even when they had the information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were studying how he was. I can't remember the name of that episode. Uh, Mike, Ch guess Mike Chamberlain. They were studying how turkeys respond to various stimuli, and how turkeys respond to hunting pressure. They had this bird no one could kill, and he would tell people where it is, just to watch what it would do. And then, but here's, they had this one bird no one could get. And some dude gets in a fight with his wife. And storms off, gets in his car and drives down. And the second he enters the, um, the second he enters like the game management area, wildlife management area of some sort, pulls over like at the entrance gate, walks over a hill, sits down against a tree. Does a hen clock and kills the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> the name of that episode was Gobble Your Ass Off, if anyone wants to listen to it. Gobble Your Ass Off, yeah. So he sent all these 
stone cold killers after this turkey who couldn't get him. And then some guy gets in a fight with his wife and storms off in a huff and gets it. I remember you asked uh, Mike if he knew what the fight was about between the husband and wife. <laughs> so uh, so where does it stand right now with Bruno? He's alive. He's alive. He's he's dinning in Arkansas. And uh he's he's all okay, so that we had hoped I, I'd hoped that they had pulled a hair sample off this bear. If they had a hair sample, they could tell from DNA where this bear came from. And they didn't and, uh, do that? They they didn't do it, and I'm. It was unclear. It just wasn't protocol to pull a hair sample off a nuisance bear, and so oh, they don't want to do anything mm-hmm. out of the. They don't want to do anything special. Yeah, and and so, but that would have told us because we have all this DNA data here in Arkansas. They got it in Wisconsin. But here's the kind of my last thought on this, Steve, is that you know all the biologists said like this is really unusual, but. Bears are notorious and large carnivores are notori- notorious for these wild like travels. I mean, there's there's stories of mountain lions that started in the Dakotas getting hit by a car in Connecticut. Uh, there have been there have been gray wolves in northern Missouri. There's, there was a lynx that was seen or, ca- or killed in Missouri. Like these these animals do these big wild migrations. And And the question I asked all the biologists was. Do you think this is more normal than we think? And because, you know, how many bears, you know, there's 800,000 to a million bears in North America right now, probably. You know, probably less than 500 are radio collared that we can actually track. And we never would have tracked this except for social media. If this bear had just been a little bit different, we would know nothing about this bear. There'd just be a bear in northern Arkansas that. It just we just thought it was an Arkansas bear. Yeah, you know, like th- this was just such an the bear. The reason the bear we know this is because of how visible he was. But maybe this happens more often than not, and we don't know it. I'd put my money on that. Yeah, I I think biologically, in in doing quite a bit of just looking at research projects and stuff, I think. Their biology favors the odd bear that does something crazy because you have these populations that pretty much all do the same thing, but there's always these outliers. And I think over like long, long periods of time, sometimes that outlier is the one that survives because of maybe some catastrophe in the home range. Do you understand what I'm saying? So like inside the mechanism of bear populations, there's the crazy uncle wild hair, you know, bear that just leaves and does something crazy. Maybe he's not biologically successful, but maybe he is. And he is what passes on genes to the next generation when all those back home got killed in some catastrophe, you know? Yeah. So anyway, just kind of like a broad view of bear biology. There seems to be a reward for doing crazy stuff sometimes, not all the time. I think about that often. Um, an interesting example is how we love the fact that and celebrate the fact that salmon have fidelity to their natal spawning stream, right? It's kind of amazing that like a salmon can be born in some little stream and go out the, the, as a little fish, the length of your finger, length of your pinky, spend a few years out on the ocean traveling around probably leave u.s international waters 
right? And come back 20 pounds and go up and lay an egg right right where that son of a bitch is, was born. But mm-hmm. some don't. Some like screw up and go to the wrong stream. And think about the ramifications of that. Like you always have, if everybody was spot on, you would never be able to, as climates change and habitat changes and forest fires burn and fill rivers full of soot, right? You'd never have the possibility of like expanding your range. But here you always have these freak outliers probing new spots to see, right? And that's got to be how things shift around. Another example I think about is the way the Polynesians, seafaring Polynesians were able to colonize these insane places, like to find the Hawaiian islands. People had to have just gone off and died and gone off and died. But for whatever reason, people would like make a boat and head off towards shit that you had no concrete idea maybe from birds or cloud formations or whatever maybe you had a suspicion there was land but all of a sudden bam like you just found hawaii Mm. your family is loving (laughs) (laughs) so yeah uh that ability to strike off is um it's probably richly rewarded yeah, or it's quickly cut off. Yeah, you know, or you're, or you're just like one of the ones that gets screwed. How many Polynesians didn't make it to Hawaii? I would, you know, that's one of the questions I would most like to know is uh, just probably just the awful, heartbreaking stories of people that just didn't find land, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Mark. What do you think about that whole bear story, Mark? I love it, and it's actually. I've been following a somewhat similar bear story over there in Wyoming in the Tetons. You know about Bear 399? Yep. That whole thing, that's that's a saw with four cubs that's been there for 24 years, photographed all the time. And just recently, she's been uh, leaving the park and going into the suburbs around Jackson, and so there's all sorts of news around that, worrying that she's going to get into trouble and this famous bear is going to have issues so yeah she just struggling with age maybe i don't know it's a weird thing from everything i've seen and read like she's healthy she's been happily in the park and then just recently she's she's got into some human food sources for the first time so i don't know Hmm. Hmm. mark uh update everybody give give people a quick crash course in the back 40 project yeah, so the back 40 is the complete opposite of a thousand mile roaming bear in that <laughs> instead of large stretches of land, we're talking about one tiny postage stamp piece of ground in Michigan. The back 40 is a, a little piece of property that we picked up about a year and a half ago. And the idea was to try to find a representative piece of private land that has been farmed and worked over the years and to see if we could take that and transform it into a wildlife paradise. Can we bring this thing back to life for all sorts of critters? And like farm uh, and the guts it, out of it. Not farm the guts no, out of it. No, it had been. Oh yeah. Historically it had been. Yes. So can we take something like that that kind of been burned to the ground 
and turn it into a wildlife paradise for not just deer, which sometimes folks like me are tempted to focus on just the big bucks, but could we do something that's 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 good for deer, good for turkeys, and, and everything else though too, birds and bees and squirrels and, and all that kind of stuff, and still have the good hunting. So that was the the question we set off to to try to at least get the beginnings of an answer in two years. So yeah, we started last last summer. And we're wrapping it up this winter. So that's that's what we've been doing. And the back 40 is 64 acres. Yes. That's a I get a lot of <laughs> comments about that. <laughs> Why didn't y'all name it the back 64? I mean. Because it just sounds like a, like something sexual or something, man. But like the back 40, <laughs> it, just, it feels landish. It feels landish. Yeah. Like the back 40 is that kind of ubiquitous term that people use to refer like, yeah, that's my piece. You, yeah. you got 24 bonus acres, man. Yeah, exactly like oh, you, you know, yeah, you'd be like, I don't know, shot it out on the back forty there, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and this is supposed to be kind of that stand-in for everyone's little back forty. When you people can follow, like the, the we we chronicle we chronicle the back forty story through a series. Yep. Available on YouTube called the back forty. Back forty. And Mark does a phenomenal job of of bringing viewers along bringing viewers along on the journey of uh, trying to do this. And it's a really compelling story about like land management. Cause I mean, people that like to hunt and fish and, you know, it's everybody's dream that you're going to buy this little chunk of land and have your own, you know, this little paradise. Like I think about it all the time. Uh, and, and so it's like, what goes into that? What are the heartbreaks? And, work that goes into that and you know and eventually we're gonna hand uh hand off the keys to the gate this isn't something that that you know here at mediator we're not gonna like keep it we're gonna give it away but um when mark first started out when i came out there the first summer mark was like kind of depressed because you thought like like how daunting it was going to be <laughs> Because you couldn't find like you couldn't find deer like mature bucks on it, but then yeah. you got like a sweet buck the first year, and then this year it's like even better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then <laughs> how much do you think is a freak? <laughs> like, like how many? So here's this place. How many big bucks did you have? Like big, like big, like mature deer. How many mature deer do you see running around there now? We've had pictures of relatively consistent pictures of probably eight or nine different bucks that are, you know, three, four or older than that. Up from zero. We had, like, there was one that was there a lot last year. Is that the one you shot? The one I shot, yeah. What do you think the age was that deer you shot, Mark? That deer I shot last year was definitely four or older. He was really fully mature. Yeah, he's, yeah, crazy looking old buck. Uh, do you think it's a freak? Is it a freak that it worked or do you think something happened that, do you think something happened that made it that all of a sudden these deer start showing up? You know, I think it's a combination of factors. I think I, I, I'm confident that the changes we have made have absolutely helped. No doubt about it. They've helped, but I don't want to claim that it's 100% me right because there could have been these random things going on we only have a two-year sample size to look at yeah. so it's just not 
it's not enough to draw really, really hard conclusions. But, you know, last year could have been an outlier, potentially, right? Maybe for some reason that I can't put a finger on, last year was just really bad. But the previous five years before that maybe had been pretty good. And we just happened to start on the worst year. Uh, or the flip side, maybe last year was normal. And this year, our stuff helped. But then there was some randomness outside of our control that helped. You know, it's some combination of that. I, I still believe, though, that the things we have done have made noticeable positive differences. Um, you can't deny that. Just the way that we're seeing these deer use the property and, and all sorts of wildlife use the property. Um, so that has been really encouraging. I probably couldn't have written it any better. If I had control of the world and I could say, all right, this is how it's going to pan out, uh, I probably would have told you it would be great if year one was pretty tough and then we see this wonderful transformation in year two. It looks dramatically different and deer popping out all over the place and we kill a bunch. Uh, that's how I would have written it. And maybe we got a little lucky. It it turned out kind of close to that. Like explain to people what kind of, what are the main things that you did? Yeah. So like, here's a chunk of land. You want to fix it up. Yeah. Walk people through like, uh, you know, the, the sort of X, Y, and Z of how to sort of rehabilitate a chunk of ground. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to go about something like this, but we had the somewhat unique circumstance of, of just having a couple of years to try to do something. So we did have a shorter time frame in which we were looking at how can we identify kind of quick turnaround possible projects that could make a noticeable difference quickly. Um, knowing though that there's still right. The long-term game that, that could and should, and hopefully be, will be worked on by whomever takes it on next. Um, so that said, the way I would look at this and the way we did look at this is try to identify like what are the missing pieces of the puzzle and on any piece of ground, whether it's public land somewhere or your own piece that you're buying, you can look and see like, what are the basic things that wildlife need to thrive here? And, you know, for, for most species, deer, especially, right. They need high quality food. They need high quality cover. So they feel secure and they can bed and, and live safely, uh, and then, you know, they need water. And if you look at any piece of property and, and look at how your piece fits into the larger picture, you can start to identify, like, what's the missing piece here? What's the, where's the water seeping out of the bucket? And then try to plug that hole. That's a great place to start. So in the case of the back 40, you know, we had essentially the property has a big, uh, what am I trying to say here? There's two very different habitat types in the property. There's these old fields that are old farm fields that have now kind of been left for two years to grow into whatever was there. So you have these old open fields, and then you have this big swamp and some timber in the middle. And what we quickly identified was that deer and critters love that swamp. There's tons of security cover. Um, there's a lot of places they feel safe. There's natural browse in there. But these old fields, which are 50% of the farm, left a lot to be desired. So 50% of our farm was hardly being used by deer, hardly being used by turkeys, except for, you know, a little bit of strutting around first thing in the morning, that kind of deal. Uh, there wasn't a lot going on for birds and, and all these other things because it was mostly just an invasive monoculture of something called mare's tail. So you had 32 acres of like a bean pole. Like if you were to look at a soybean field, after the soybeans dried down, anyone you know that lives in farm country, I think you can 
follow me here. Imagine a bean field that's dried down with no leaves, with no beans on it, just those bean stalks. That's kind of what all these fields looked like. There was no reason that birds or bugs would want to hang out in there. Deer didn't feel safe in there. Um, Squirrels didn't want to be in there. So a lot of what we tried to do was transform those old fields. Uh, We did that in a couple different ways, Steve. We did that by, one, trying to improve the cover out there and the diversity out there. So I didn't want this great big dried down bean field of, of no food, no cover. So we, we did a few things. We planted switchgrass, which is a warm season grass that provides a lot of cover for deer, uh, great poulting habitat for turkeys, great for all sorts of different game birds. Um, so grassy cover provides a year round visible high cover. Animals are going to feel safe out there now. We planted a blend of different pollinators, so wildflowers, certain grasses and forbs that our bees are going to like, that our butterflies are going to like. We planted some milkweed out there, and they're great stuff for, for butterflies and all these different bugs and small birds that help pollinate everything else. That's important for everything, all the plant life. So we wanted to help out there. Uh, something else we did was plant strips of sorghum, which is essentially a tall grass, a really tall grass that looks kind of like corn, but it was just a way to quickly, this this goes back to the quick turnaround in our case, I needed to quickly find a way to take these big wide open 10 acre fields and make them feel much smaller, more compartmentalized. Again, most critters don't like to walk out into wide open, you know, wide open spaces. They'd much rather be feeling tight to cover, tight to edge. Uh, deer and Turkeys and most of these animals really like to be near edges where they can go from a place where they can feed to quickly feeling like they're safe again. We didn't have a lot of that to start. So by planting these big strips and half circles of this thick cover, all of a sudden you had that. Uh, We planted trees is another thing we did. Doug, old Doug Duran came out to help me out and uh, we put 50 some trees in the ground this summer. Um, that's more of a long-term play. It's going to be a while till those are, you know, as, as big and as substantial as they could be, of course. But right there, we're again, adding these different pockets of structure. Um, so really we're just trying to take this big wide open sameness and turn it to in a bunch of secure differentness. (laughs) That's what animals want. And so that was a lot of what we did with the fields. Um, and you could right away see this fall how much more comfortable, you know, in the case of deer season, we're focusing on deer, uh, how much more comfortable these deer were coming out and moving and feeding in these pockets where they, where they never would have last year. Um, so that was step one. Um, do you want to just keep rolling through them? Yeah. <laughs> hey, can I say my favorite part of the back 40 so far, just real yeah. quick? Yeah. Was, uh, when uh, Doug Duran and you were planting trees and the new guy came to help you, <laughs> Doug Duran tells the guy to turn his hat around forward yeah i was <laughs> do you remember that i like that I mean, I saw, that was a good scene and it really um he did it a very surprisingly forceful yet loving way and then the next that describes doug well the very <laughs> the very next scene the dude has his hat on backwards oh, yeah. again <laughs> doug told him he couldn't work with his hat on backwards and he fixed it but then later there he is with his hat backwards <laughs> old habits die hard do you believe mm. I know this is true, so I don't really care what you say, but do you believe that Doug's urine <laughs> really is especially, it's called Buckman juice, that mm-hmm. it really is especially attractive to deer, that there's something about Doug's urine? 
you know, I used to, I actually am going to contradict you here, Steve, because I used to believe that. And then I had them out last October and we had them spritz some around for us and it did not help for shit. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Because he's, so, he's too far from home. That could be it. Maybe the Michigan deers aren't trained up on it like Wisconsin deer. Probably food source, different food source. He was off. He was eating different stuff and everything. So did he leave yeah. you the bottle of Buckman juice? <laughs> no. Should have asked for some. You've seen the evidence, though, right? I have. The trail cam evidence? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and I, you know, I, I can't remember if we talked about it here or somewhere before, but studies have shown that human urine is just as effective as an attractant in scrapes as actual deer urine. That's mm-hmm. proven. We've had a lot of guys write in that deer come and inspect their chew spit piles when they're spitting chew off the tree stand. <laughs> that stresses me out. That they come in and they like that. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's funny. One of our one of our cameramen does a little chewing, and I kind of gave him the talking to. I said, "Hey, man, I don't think we should be chewing in the tree stand, spitting this all over the place." So if he had uh, if he'd seen this uh, research you found or whatever these stories were, he might have been able to prove me wrong. That's okay. You know, the deer biologist, uh, well, general biologist, but does does a lot of deer work. Jim Heffelfinger mm-hmm. used to chew Levi Garrett and named his kids Levi and Garrett. <laughs> And deer like, <laughs> mm. I have it on good authority that deer love Levi Garrett. All right, so continue mm. on. The trees came from Doug Duran. Some of them did, some yeah. Of, he brought some, some pines. Out. He brought some pines. And, uh, yeah, so that was cool. There's a little bit of the Doug Duran legacy on the back 40, which, you know, is a nice is a nice little bit of, of history to put on the place. There's so, there's so many little memories and stories now attached to this piece of ground that it's nice to have Doug add his to that. So yeah, we, we put some white pines in, we put some cedars, we put some spruce, again, different kinds of, you know, coniferous trees that are going to provide structure and cover out there, right? Deer are going to eventually bed around these. Turkeys are going to hang out around there. Birds are going to nest in them. And, and the way that trees, the, the way we looked at it, was that by playing these pockets of trees out in the wide open, you're going to have kind of the effect like you might see in a lake where you drop a Christmas tree in the middle of a lake or a sunk tree and all of a sudden fish congregate around it. Largemouth bass love that structure or cover inside of a, a water source. It's the same deal with deer and other animals. Yeah, crappies they, they too. Want that. What do you guys call crappies, yeah. Clay? Man, crappie. I, oh, okay. I thought you guys had some stupid word for it. No, man. That's when I, yeah. Okay. I heard that about that. Go on. <laughs> so anyways, Christmas tree out in the lake. Yeah, so we, we've planted these pockets of Christmas trees or evergreen trees all around these old fields to, again, give animals a reason to come out into these fields, travel around. And, and you know, if you could imagine, if you've ever seen, you've ever been, ever been flying across the country and they have the TV screen in the back of the um, chair in front of you, yeah. and you can hit that. And it'll show a map of all the different flight paths from the various yes, cities. Yes. That's the effect we wanted to create on a property like this. Huh. So instead of having just, you know, Detroit, Texas, and Washington, D.C., I would rather have, you know, 18 different airports on our property that these deer want to travel in between and across from. And oh, now that's super interesting, up. man. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. You, you make little shit that he needs to go look at. 
Exactly. So we're going to see that every year as these pockets mature and the fields mature, you're going to see that happen more and more often. Already this year, we've we've seen deer hitting, visiting those trees and, and rubbing on them, scraping underneath them. So they're already starting to use it in that way. Once those trees fill out, we're going to start to see does bedding in these pockets. And then all of a sudden, bucks are going to need to check these pockets for does that may be ready to breed. So in a few years, it's it's going to be that airport effect for sure. Huh. This year, we just started to see a little of it. I like that. Uh, I, I, I like that little. Do you cover that? And uh, you cover that in back 40? Yeah, we, we talk about it. I don't think I use that airport analogy in the actual video. Yeah, I don't need the but, I don't necessarily need that yeah. exact analogy. But it's it's uh, it's like when you know when you go away for a week and you come home, you kind of make the rounds mm-hmm. to see like who did annoying stuff to your stuff while you were gone. <laughs> like before I walk, if it's summertime, before I even go near my house, I go into my garden. Right. And you look. And you go look, and then eventually, like an hour later, I'm seeing if they put the pans back where I like the pans. <laughs> and it, my 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 uh, tongs are in the top drawer next to the stove, you know? Like, I just check everything. I got my little circuit. I love that idea with, like, Habitat, that a buck, he's like, I'm going to go see what's going on with the ladies. That He's yeah. just got a lot of little spots he's got to exactly. check out. Instead you of just one little from... brush patch, and then he's off on the neighbor's property. Exactly. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com, and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's xssites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater. 
to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors, big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash meat eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash meat eater. Hey Mark, can I can I ask you a question? Just an observation. So, the, the aerial video, like the drone shots of the of the back forty, I was struck by how it's it. There didn't seem to be any real big blocks of timber that the sixty four acres was connected to. Did I miss some of that, or or is that common? I mean, it's kind of like being from the the kind of whitetail habitat I'm used to, like central Kansas seems like it would be void of deer, but you know, they're bedding in grass and there's hardly any trees there. So it may be that effect happening on me, but it seems like there's not any big timber close to that property. So I guess it's all relative when you say big. Um, there are some substantial blocks of timber that our property connects into north and south of us. Um, so basically we're in the middle of a, of a little bit of a watershed and there's that swamp that runs through the middle of our property and then farm fields on the east and west. And that same pattern follows as you go north or south to the neighbors, but they still have those big chunks of timber in the middle that kind of coincide with that wet, with those wet spots. And you see that a lot down here in Agland, where if it's good, dry, relatively flat land, it's going to be farmed. But the plot, the spots you do still have timber and good cover. That's just because you couldn't farm it, and and so there's a, there's a pretty good amount of that around here. So that's not a limiting factor, though, because I mean a lot of, with a small property, you know, you're always trying to evaluate the properties around it because those yes. properties are like for sure going to affect your property. Yep. So on the back forty, you're not you feel pretty good about the surrounding habitat. Yeah, so it's it's relative to a lot of places around here. It's really good. Okay, we have a lot more cover than most people do. Um, a lot more timber than most other places around here do, and that was a big part of why I picked this spot. I, I was really careful to think about exactly what you described the neighborhood, because when you have a small piece, you you don't control everything, you don't influence everything. These animals are all over the place, so you really want to pick a spot within a. a a high quality general area because you're going to be sharing, you know, the, those wildlife are going to be passing through all of your places. So it's great to be in the middle of really good stuff. And so that's, that's what we have. We have a good neighborhood, uh, high quality, relatively high quality habitat around us. And, and we're just able to kind of plug a gap in it and make it extra good in this, in this part of it. Mm. So talk about the, the buck you found this year, you, um, the way you hunt, deer 
where you hunt them, which is kind of like a little bit different than wilderness type hunting is, is you often are very specific in particular where you're not hunting like deer, you're hunting a deer. Yep. And that's usually out of necessity. No, because well, no, necessity because you got you got a you'll have a bunch of deer around, but you got one on your mind, and you tailor your activities for that one. Yeah, but but usually that's because I'm hunting in this case one small property, and the other places I hunt in Michigan, they're also pretty small properties, and I usually only have like one mature buck. Oh, I see what you're and saying. So, I got you. Yeah, yeah. So he ends up being the one deer I really want to take. I got um, you because he's the only one that meets that age criteria that that for me is what I want. I'm with you. So you do. don't you don't have like you're not you don't have ten to choose from. Yeah. yeah. So it was a little different on the back forty this year in that we had a bunch of relatively mature deer. So we had like I said eight or nine different bucks that are probably three and a half or older. And you name you was, always like to name them all. I do. What, just what were their names? What were their names? We have a buck so, we named here at my house called Old Limpy. Old Limpy? Yep. We got a and we got I an thought, old one eye. Uh Old Limpy last year had a bad front leg. And Old Limpy this year has a bad back leg. <laughs> but we Same deer? No. No. It's okay, not I didn't but think so. <laughs> with my kids, it's Old Limpy and it's just Old Limpy. The limp That's moved. <laughs> The limp move, but it's him. <laughs> yes, we've got an old one eye. We got a one eyed buck out there. Um, he's a buck that was around last year too. He's the only one that for sure I can identify from last year to this year. So that was cool to see a holdover. Um, there was little droppy. Just he a little. He's got a little drop tine. And when I first saw him, I was just like, "Guy, ah, he's got a little droppy tine." And so that the just name stuck. stuck. <laughs> His name stuck. Um, there was usually these names are just kind of just labeling a labeling a characteristic. So there's the sticker eight. There's a tight eight pointer. It has some stickers off of his base on one side. Um, there's the heavy eight, just a really heavy, solid eight pointer. Yeah, you, sometimes you're very um, you're very uh, clever, right? Like yeah. last year, get, <laughs> last year there was a buck called the wide eight, and guess what that yeah. buck looked like? <laughs> Man, it's it's I used to. I used to do the whole naming thing. It used to be a thing. Like I think when I, when I was getting into hunting to this degree, I saw these other people doing it and I was like, Oh, that's like, that's the cool thing to do. And I, and I started doing it from that perspective mm-hmm. and that kind of faded for me. Yeah. And now it's simply just, it's a practical thing to do because I see these deer over and over and over. And I have to talk about these deer over and over and over. It's really difficult. It would be very difficult for me to be on a podcast and say, I saw that one eight-pointer that's on the 64-acre property. It's got a patch on his neck sure, and a G4 that's not quite this tall. So, so now I keep it pretty simple. Um, but, so, yeah, there's the sticker eight. The, go ahead. Uh, oh, go on. I, I need to ask you why you can't get that one uh, Tron buck. <laughs> but go on oh, don't don't bring that up <laughs> so yeah, stick Steve, to the back 40 for a minute so you got yeah, all these so, books um, what other names uh yes i'm trying to think what haven't i covered yet there was the heavy eight there was the sticker eight there was droppy there was <laughs> old one eye there was there's a funky sided buck that tony peterson one of our mediator contributors he was out there with me uh the summer and we were looking at trail camera pictures, and there was a buck that has one really nice four-point side, and then the other side is a really funky, strange, 
couple forks and daggers coming off. So if you look at him from one side, he's real straight and normal. But if you were to get to know him a little bit more, you see he's very strange and a little bit unique. And so Tony thought that was it'd be fitting to call him Spencer after our mutual oh, friend yeah, Spencer Newharth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So uh, so there's Spencer. Um, and I'm trying to think who I'm forgetting here. Those are, those are the bucks I can remember off the top of my head. And when you M- were, men- it, but when you're hunting and, and you had a, you know, you had a crew with you. So you're filming the hunt when you're hunting and you can see the hunt on the back, like, cause it's like a cool, successful hunt, but were you tailoring it? Were you like trying to generalize it or were you tailoring your activities for one of these or for all of these? Mm. So in some places it would be for one of these. In this case, it was kind of for any one of these. We had to see which one of these deer or which which of these deer would spend the most time during hunting season, during the periods we would actually be hunting there. So as, you know, coming into the season, I, I saw all these deer were there. I was looking at pictures of all these different deer using the property and we can only hunt certain windows, right? Because that's when we're going to be there hunting it and filming it and everything like that. So it was a little bit of a waiting game and seeing, okay, these bucks are there right now. Which of these bucks will be around here when we can start hunting them? And what can I learn about that? And so as the season started progressing, you would see there was, you know, this buck is spending a lot of time in this corner and these two bucks are hanging out in this bottom section. And so you start to have a little bit of a pattern related to one or two of these bucks. But once we started hunting, you had to kind given the fact it's so small, you simply don't have a lot of options. There's a few good spots that are probably going to be where it's going to happen. Yeah, it's not like you're like and, driving off to this end of the place. It's just like you can walk it all. Mark, how yeah. many trail cameras do you have up on that 64 acres? You know, I think we had 10. 10. We had a bunch. God, it's like a, conven- yeah, it's like a, it's like a it, convenience it's, store. It's, it seems to me like <laughs> on a property that small, it would be hard to, I mean, to answer or to, to add to the question Steve's asking is like, on that 64 acres though, there wasn't like a section that you were like, that buck is always there. That buck is always there. It was, it was, was, you you were hunting travel areas that any one of those bucks could have come through. Now at any given time, it might've been a trend for one of those bucks to be showing up there. Yeah. About right. That's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, what happened is that eventually, um, as we started hunting, I noticed that that drop time buck, was our most frequent visitor to the southern half of the farm. That's where he was spending a lot more time based on pictures and sightings of of any deer that we saw. I saw him the most, and he was spending a lot of time down there. So he became the deer I thought was most likely that we'd have a chance at. Um, And I saw him the first time we hunted the farm all year. I saw him come out down there, and then... The first night of my rut hunt out there in early November, I saw him and almost got a shot, had him come in chasing a doe into one of those fields, one of our little food plots there. And uh, he came running around and several times stopped at about 55 yards. I just didn't want, wasn't going to take that kind of shot. And uh, so after that, I said, okay, this buck, the drop time buck is hanging out in and around this bedding area. We call it the honey hole. He's in here a lot. And if I spend enough time around this bedding area and make sure that the wind's right so I'm not spooking deer, if, I, if I'm if i in this area with the right winds for enough days during the rut, he's going to come through, and and I'll be in the game at least. 
So to oversimplify things, that was was my strategy when I actually started hunting, which was during the rut. Um, and you know, and eventually it kind of came together. I don't know if we want to get into that. Yeah, but, tell me but what that happened. Out. Yeah, so two days after that encounter with him, this was on November 9th, I think, or eighth, um, ninth, I guess. I went and sat in that honey hole spot. So this is this patch of native prairie that we found last year. It's really unique. It's rare. There are not many spots that native prairie ecosystems still exist in southern Michigan. No, that place is cool. And I like how you recognize it right off and knew that it was going to be like a producer. Yeah. That was what sold me on the farm. When I walked it the very first time, I I, I walked it from a clockwise, in a clockwise direction. So I started up in the panhandle at kind of 11 o'clock and then walked the outside edge all the way down to about 8 o'clock. Eight or nine o'clock is when you get to the honey hole. And when I got there, I said, oh, this, this has something special going on here with the grasses and the cedars, uh, just tremendous bedding habitat for all stri- all types of animals, but deer especially. Um, so this is actually the spot, the first tree I prepped to hunt last summer, uh, ended up being the tree we killed that buck from this year. And we did a prescribed fire in there this summer to improve it. In that, sorry, not summer, in the spring. So we actually went in there and, and lit the place on fire, which is a cool thing. I, I'd never done that before. Um, and it's amazing the power that fire has to naturally revive and restore an ecosystem. Basically, it, it, it burns all the extra detritus and, and leaf cover and, and dead material on top of the soil and, and opens it all up for new growth, adds new nutrients to the soil. Um Right, that that's what happens out on public lands out west when a fire comes through. It it, it restores a lot of vitality to that to that area, and so that's what we try to do here. We had a special little rare prairie. Let's let's boost it. Let's help it along. Let's help it grow. So we removed some of these invasive autumn olives and buckthorn trees in there too. So all that to say is that we we it was neat to make some changes to this already pretty neat spot. See that come together hunt the first tree I ever thought we should hunt from on my last hunting trip on the back 40 and have it come together where, you know, that morning I got in there on the edge of this and, oh, an hour after daylight spotted a buck way down the swamp beneath me and pulled up my binos and it was that Spencer buck. It was the funky side of deer. And you could just see he was cruising across the swamp. He wasn't with a doe, but he was he was searching for a doe. Just you could see the way he was moving on a mission across the swamp. So that got me excited. And maybe 10 minutes later, I saw another flash of white down there. I pull up my binoculars and I see a doe running across and then a big set of white tines behind her. And run soon after, I could see the drop tines. So I could see it was now it was the drop buck that I'd seen a few days before. So I'm, I'm watching, watching. I see the doe squirt out. And maybe 15 minutes later, here she comes again. And here comes the drop time buck again. So I was excited by that, but it was pretty far away. This is 500 yards away, maybe. And on the neighbor's you know, off in the distance, I could there, you could just see them through the binoculars. So th- I knew they were in my world, but I did not necessarily think they'd be on top of me anytime soon. Um, so uh, fast forward 45 minutes when I saw a flash of movement right underneath me about 60, 70 yards away, passing through the cedars, I wasn't expecting it necessarily to be one of those bucks, but I, I saw a nice set, a, a nice kind of profile view of, of, of antlers passing through the cedars, just like a flash really quick. I knew it was a buck that I wanted to get another look at at least though. So I grabbed my grunt tube, let out a, a couple of just deep grunts just a brah, and five seconds later, this deer comes popping back out from behind the cedar and 
instantly saw it was the drop time buck and it's it's beautiful I'm, it's so neat that we have it captured on film and i can relive that moment because just a really cool deer and he came into the grunt walked underneath one of these cedars just ripped up a scrape oh kicking really up dirt and leaves like kicking 20 feet behind him you can just see it thrown way back mm-hmm. there um, like all around I mean, just the, yeah he was fired up and uh, made that scrape and then kind of walked across behind a big oak tree that's in there and I couldn't get a shot and it was there was a moment of significant tension where <laughs> he was if he continued on that route he was going to hit where my wind was blowing it was blowing right up the edge and he was headed right for it and so in my head I'm thinking all right if he steps out from behind that oak tree he's gonna, he's gonna be right he's gonna be right in my wind and it's gonna be either I'm gonna have a quick moment to get that shot or he's gonna blow out of there so I was mentally preparing myself for that. And then just out of pure luck, he stopped, turned around, and started to go back the way he came, but angled even closer to me. So he came back, came around the oak tree, and walked right to the most perfect place for a shot. How far? How many yards? And, uh, 15, 20 yards, oh, somewhere mm, like that. Perfect archer shot. Yeah. And then he stopped? It was, uh, I stopped him with just a little, meh, just a little sound. Stopped him. and uh, That's a pretty good grunt, Mark. When you when you, he, went, when you went when you went when you went uh man did he um did he peg you or did he just stop he stopped and looked right in our direction yeah but not up you know I don't I guess I don't remember if he looked up or towards us I'd have to go look at the video again I don't remember but either way whatever you we did he didn't do it for long yeah I was a full draw and, and he had an arrow on him seconds later so and he ran like he ran maybe 50, 60 yards and was down. Um, Dude. so that was, it was super cool. Between I mean, that, it was like between that wide eight, which is so cool. Last, yeah, that's great, man. It was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it's been a project that's been a ton of work and a lot of, a lot of last year felt like we were just beating our head against the wall. And I was, I was surprised by how little, um, progress we were seeing to see it change this year in a pretty dramatic fashion. Just, yeah, just really encouraging oh, cool, to man. me. And uh, and what you can do, and it wasn't like we did anything really crazy with with an insane budget. Mm-hmm. We we went we didn't sink tons and tons and tons of money into the changes we made. We we used small equipment. We rented something for a day to plant the trees. Um, you know, this is something that that I could have done. You know, on my own maybe. Um, what I'm trying to say here is is not outside of the possibility for anyone else to do something similar. Um. Hmm. How how bad do you wish like like if you had that place if all of a sudden we said like I know you wouldn't want to back out on the plan but if all of a sudden it was just yours for whatever reason would that be like a favorite hunting spot of yours? <laughs> Last week while we were hunting, I thought about this a lot, and even one of the cameramen and I joked that maybe we should save up some money and whenever the new owners want to get rid of it, we'll buy it from oh, them. You, you like that spot <laughs> because, now? Because yeah. I, is this place pretty far from where you live, Mark? It's close, relatively close. Okay. It's within, you know, I, I could hunt it if I wanted okay. um, on a frequent basis. There's so much potential. Like to see the difference we were able to to make in one year. I, I could I could sit here for two hours talking to you about all the other projects I'd like to do if we had this for ten years and how yeah. how much how uh, just how awesome it could be. It's it's. I think what we proved here was that you can make progress towards a goal like we had. And, and I think you can, I can confidently say like we made 
positive steps in the right direction in two years, basically a year and a half. Um, but there's lot, lots more we could tackle if we had the time and, and hopefully, you know, someday somebody will. Yeah. Well, I, one of the beautiful things about the project is that you're starting to, you know, help and create a blueprint. Not that you're, you know, like, like we're in, in inventing anything here. It's like a thing that people do. We're just doing a version of it. But creating a blueprint for how to come in and, and, and maximize wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, restore a piece of property that has been, you know, that the, the the priority for that land was different. The priority for that land wasn't wildlife habitat. The priority of that land was making food for people to eat, which is like noble and, and great. But what can be done when you can take a little piece of ground and bring some, you know, environmental stewardship and good conservation practices and, and, and kind of watch that impact. And if you could do that or people can do that in a lot of places all across the country and create like this extensive patchwork of pieces of ground like that with some protections on them into the future, it's good for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. Are you are you, you know, ready to another, talk about what's going to happen with that place, or should we hold off? Yeah, yeah, I can talk about that, but I, I want to give a little prelude to that in 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 that this project not only opened my eyes from a habitat perspective, but it also opened my eyes from the perspective of how you can use and enjoy a place like this. Um, there's definitely a tendency, especially within like the hardcore whitetail hunting world to look at a proper, if you were to have access to a property, whether you own it or have a lease or it's a hunt club or whatever, um, there's, there's often a tendency to be hypersensitive to keeping it all to yourself or keeping it all to just, you know, no extra impact, no extra people, because especially if you're trying to target mature deer or big deer or whatever, um, one of the overarching principles for being able to to have deer like that around and to be able to get a shot at deer like that is to keep those deer unaware of the fact that there's a bunch of hunters trying to kill them. So keep pressure low. So for a lot of years, I have obsessed over the idea of, you know, nobody else out on these properties. If you can control it, you know, nobody else out there, I'm only going to go in there a few times when everything's just right. And I don't want to mess it up because if I do, that buck's going to be out of here. Um, and And so that was a little bit of a uh, that was like a lens that I looked at habitat management and hunting through for, for many of my years leading up to this. But taking on this project, we decided that, hey, this isn't going to be a place that just Mark hunts. And this isn't going to be about just Mark trying to kill a big buck. This is also going to be about sharing it with other people. Mm. So last year we invited um, a, uh, we invited a researcher out. We invited Doug Duran to come out and hunt. We invited my dad to come out and hunt. We invited... Uh, Cal and a new hunter last winter to come out and hunt. This year, we brought my dad back again. Uh, we brought the hunt winner out last week to come and, and spend some time out there. We brought another new hunter out there. And what I learned was twofold. Number one, I learned that even on a small property like this, even in a state like Michigan where there are a lot of other hunters, there's a lot of pressure on these deer. Um, you can still share and have 
other people out there doing this, these kinds of things and having a good time and still have quality hunting. We had way more people hunting this property than I ever would have thought we could have got away with and still killed some nice bucks. Um, so from, from that standpoint, that was eye opening and encouraging to me. But most importantly, I also was just reminded of how much more enjoyable hunting can be when you share it with people. Mm -hmm. A lot of my whitetail hunting and a lot of other like really serious whitetail hunters, you sometimes can get stuck in the solitary nature of it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like me trying to achieve my goal in my spot in my way. And it's, it's me waking up at three 30 in the morning and going out and hunting all day. And I'm very mission focused or whatever you want to say. Um, there's a lot of folks like that. And it was a great reminder to me in getting to share this place with other people and hunt with other people and, and see them enjoy this place of just, and this is a simple thing and it's obvious, but sometimes you got to get smacked over the head with it. Like how great that is. Mm-hmm. It was great to be able to take a new hunter out there and, and see him get a shot at his first buck and the, the, the highs and lows and the excitement. It was, it was amazing to get to my, take my dad out there. And I got the opportunity to spend time with my dad on the property last fall and this year come back again we changed a bunch of things to try to make it, uh, you know, a better situation for him. And he actually got to kill his first deer with archer equipment ever, his biggest buck ever. Um, getting to see all that, the, the joy I got out of spending time in the property with my dad and with Dan and with Dane, the hunt winner, and last year, those are the people. That is what I will probably remember even more than those nice bucks I shot. And, and so I think if I take anything away from this personally – that is actually been my greatest lesson mm-hmm. from the back 40. Um, you can transform a property, not only in habitat and wildlife use, but also in how we as humans enjoy it and enjoy it together. Yeah. And um, that was, that's, that was the moral of the story for me. That's great. I like all that. That's good. Super good. So tell us real quick, what's going to happen. Let's, let's see. Don't want to get into it. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was my long uh, wind up to answering your question. <laughs> um, so, as I just described, I think that we have both I personally and we as a company obviously see the value in sharing places like this and and using it as a tool as an as a as a as a place where we can help others experience something like that. Um, one of the things that came about this year is that I invited a new hunter, Dan Jajo, out to the property to hunt with us, and I had met him last year at a QDMA Field to Fork event. Steve, I know you had those guys on the podcast. I think it was last summer we were all out here together. Um, basically, it's a mentorship program that uh, that is is kind of been scaled across the country to help bring new hunters out there into the field, partner them with a mentor, and spend a weekend teaching them how to do everything from shoot a crossbow to find deer and find deer sign, and then actually how to gut a deer, process a deer, cook a deer, all these different things. So I met Dan at a program like that last year that I was mentoring at. And I noticed in him that he, you know, was really passionate, was excited about learning, but had really struggled without a mentor. And we invited him back out this year. We had him come join us on the farm with Doug and help plant trees and plant food plots and help to teach him along with all these different things. And coming out of that, we just saw that, man, this place, the back 40, it, it's a perfect place to facilitate that kind of learning experience, both in the off season and then actually in the season. He came out and hunted and and had a really 
awesome experience. And so we've been looking at ways to find um, how can we scale that? How can we keep that kind of learning experience happening here? How can the back 40 not just be a terrific launching pad for Dan, but could it be something like that for other people too? And what we have settled on and what we're going to do is we are going to give away the back 40 to the organization formerly known as the Quality Deer Management Association. Now it is the National Deer Association. We're going to donate it to the National Deer Association so that they can continue using this place as a, um, as a, as a learning tool, a place that they can bring folks out and show them um, things like hab- the habitat management we've done and show them how to set up a tree stand and how to find deer sign and how to improve native grasses and why deer like to use these pockets of evergreens and then eventually take them out there for these hunts and, and have a great high-quality place to, to have a first deer hunt. I know from working with some friends that have uh, that work for the Quality Deer Management Association and set up these mentored hunts that oftentimes finding a place to bring these new hunters is your greatest challenge. A lot of times private landowners, um, you know, they don't necessarily want to open up their ground to a bunch of new hunters in the middle of October. So that has been a struggle. And we thought, hey, let's let's help as much as we can there by providing a great place to do that and a great um essentially a living museum of, of, of learning opportunities here. That's what the back 40 can be and we're, what we're hoping it will be. So the NDA will be taking on the property and using it to help other folks and teach other folks and, and hopefully mentor a lot of people into the future. And that's at a high level. That's our plan. Okay. Tell people uh, to close out, tell people how to go check out and uh, engage with back 40. Yes, yeah, so the best place is go to the Meat Eater YouTube channel and watch the show there. Season one came out last fall. Season two is being released right now. Every Sunday, I believe, um, I can't remember what time, but every Sunday a new episode is dropping through December. Um, so check that out. You're going to get to see all the preseason work I've been talking about. You'll get to see my dad's hunt. You'll get to see my hunt for the drop time buck. Uh, you'll even get to see the hunt where we take Dan, the new hunter out and Dane, the sweepstakes winner. Um, and then we're, we're going to be putting together some content also documenting what's going to happen next year. These mentorship opportunities, we're going to, we're going to create some stuff around that as well. So you'll be able to see all that at the meateater.com. We'll be sharing articles and podcasts about it as well. Mark, how many episodes of the Back 40 in Season 2 are there going to be? There's six regular episodes. And so and there's, there's, some, there's two up. Well, by the time this comes out, they'll all be there'll up. There'll be more. Yeah. But yeah, six six episodes of the regular series and then some bonus content to come next year. Right on. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you, guys. And Clay. Newcomb. Newcomb. Thanks for joining. Newcomb. Thanks for the ex uh, and Clay. That thanks for the excellent um, book report you did on Bruno the Bear. Bruno, we're gonna be giving Pretty you fascinating story. We're gonna give you a lot more assignments in the near future. You did original research. Sounds good. Like a like a like a like a like a hard hitting journalist. Yeah, it's like watching sixty minutes watching you work. Man, you should have seen me on the phone. Man, I was giving them left and rights. Bam, bam. Had those biologists back in the corner. Good stuff, man. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Thank you. Everybody go check out Back 40. It's a great story. We're super proud of it. Enjoy.
Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 